Good afternoon and welcome to today's CME activity. There is no commercial support and the speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. You will receive a SurveyMonkey link after today's activity. And if you're viewing online, the evaluation link will be listed in the links icon in the description section um, of the video. The important thing here is to um, get your CME credits, you have to answer the evaluation. There is a certificate attached to um, the evaluation, and this is what you will need to renew your license. Um, if you have a question, we will wait and do those at the end of the presentation. And if you're viewing online, please enter it into the Q&A chat, and I'll ask at the end of the presentation. So it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Lena Duda and Dr. Alex Schnibben. Dr. Duda is the medical director for hospice and in-home palliative care at Northeast Georgia Medical Center. She is board certified in internal medicine and hospice and palliative care medicine. She is also certified as a hospice medical director. She's been practicing as a hospitalist for 25 years and as a hospice and palliative care physician for 17 years. And as a hospice and palliative care physician, she treats many patients for pain and symptoms related to the end of life. Dr. Alex Schnibben obtained her Doctor of Pharmacy from the South Carolina College of Pharmacy at the University of South Carolina in 2011, and she completed her postgraduate year one community pharmacy practice residency at Virginia Commonwealth University in 2012. In 2019, she transitioned to the Northeast Georgia Physician Group as an ambulatory care pharmacist working to establish ambulatory pharmacy services. She has since been promoted to Director Clinical, Clinical Quality and Ambulatory Pharmacy Services. In her current role, she focuses on population health, medication access, medication and immunization safety and education, and direct patient services provided by pharmacists. Join me in welcoming Dr. Duda and Dr. Schnibben. Well, thank you guys for having me today. I'm going to preface this. I'm not a pharmacologist. I'm a pharmacist. I will do my best to go over pharmacology, but I'm not an expert in that. Um, but we're going to really focus today on the pharmacokinetics and the pharmacodynamics of opioids. So there's a difference. So pharmacokinetics is what the body does to the drug. And the dynamic is the opposite. It's what the drug does to the body. So pharmacokinetics, you take it in, you utilize it. After you utilize it and process it, what it does to the body is the dynamics. So kinetics comes before you actually get the clinical effect. So we have two objectives we're going to try to achieve today, which is review the history of opioids as well as define the pharmacokinetics and the pharmacodynamics of opioids. So let's have a little bit of discussion on that background. Opium's been around from the poppy plant since 3,400 3, BC, so it's been around for a while. And since then, we've done a lot of research around it, manipulation, and that has led to us where we're currently at with our opioid epidemic. Opioids are naturally occurring alkaloids such as morphine and codeine. The rest of them are actually synthetically modified and created in labs leading to our more potent um, forms of opioids as well as allowing us to have the ability to try to make it abuse deterrent 
or changing the formulation to change how quickly it reacts in our body, as well as the quick clinical onset for a provider. And what's important when we think about that and we get into actual half-life is thinking about those with the longer acting half-lives and how they compound on the patient. So the patient might tell you after the first dose, I'm feeling great, but five days later, they're going to be feeling really bad and having a lot of those opioid adverse clinical effects. So the term is used broadly, opioids, to describe the compounds that hit the opioid receptors. Originally, we used that word opiates just to describe both morphine and codeine. Then we went to opioids to kind of define the class. And then from there, it's been off to now using the word narcotic, what comes from the Greek word stupor. Um, because a lot of these were considered first coming out to be used for sleep because they hadn't quite modified it until the hypodermic needle came out to be able to use it for pain. Um, but since then, we've used narcotics to clearly define when we think about how we do our laws, how we have narcotic agencies that make sure that we're using the medications correctly, but also making sure that um, uh, drugs of abuse do not make it into the U.S. So again, they went from a legal term, from a use of term for medical now to a legal term, and that can happen over time. So if we digged in deep into the history of opioids, we would be here for a very long time because it started all the way in BC. So I teased it down to let's just focus on how it affects the United States and how we got to where we were in the Civil War to where we're now in 2017, where we actually officially declared a public health crisis and measure for um, being taken against the fight against opioids. So back in the Civil War, that was in the 1860s, and opioids were used at that time, just morphine, because that's when the hypodermic needle was discovered to use it for pain. And so when they came out of that, they would say the soldiers had soldier's disease, which would obviously mean morphine addiction. And in the following years of the war, that was one considered a crisis in how to find treatment. But at the time, we did not have the treatment. And on our next slide, we're going to show you where treatment started to come in. And that was very late compared to the 1860s when we actually start discovering the possibility of tolerance and addiction. Then in 19, 1898 is when we saw heroin come onto the scene um, and it's claimed to fame was supposed to be less habit forming than morphine, but we all know that that has kind of been debunked. Then we started seeing more restrictions passed on narcotics, 1910s, 1920s were placed and that's when we started seeing laws come into place to make opioids prescriptions. And then we also saw the outlaw of heroin. Again, we had more laws come into a face in the 1970. We got the Controlled Substance Act, and that is in place still today, in which it divides it into different groups to help us understand what is the risk of tolerance, addiction, and abuse. And so that's where you kind of get your categories of, you know, class one controlled substance, two, three, four, and five. That's how you kind of get it classified. It's really looking at dependence leading to addiction to help define and delineate what drugs go in that class. Then we have the dawn of Oxycontin. We all know that came for Purdue Pharma. I'm sure you've seen a lot in the news about this with their lawsuits. And they introduced it as a gentler, less addictive opioid pill. And we know over the two decades from that use and that approval of that medication, doctors went to increasingly prescribe these medications to treat, um, to treat pain um, over other medications. Why? Why did that happen? First, we had direct-to-consumer marketing. We had drug reps coming into the offices and really giving information around that. But we know drug reps only give a one-sided talk because they are much driven and trained on one thing that they can say. Unless you talk to a medical science liaison, you're not going to get the true picture of that. So when we had them coming in and um, 
doing that. You know, when a drug is being marketed, they also go through payer reform and trying to get more coverage for that. And what we also found is that payers were also not willing to pay for opioid alternatives. So think about our lidocaine patch as one of them. And thinking about in the 2000, we had diclofenac gel and we'd have to go through all these hoops to use opioid sparing um, medication. And that is still present today. I'm sure if you guys are an outpatient, you can think about the number of times that you receive a prior authorization for a lidocaine patch. That's going to be a hundred percent of the prescriptions you send out. Same thing with um, diclofenac gel. So there is still a lot needed on the payer side to really help the provider be able to get the medications that a patient needs. We think about that. When a patient's in pain, you just want to help them. We all know that that is something we need to treat, we need to do because it can affect the quality of life, but we want to do it in a safe manner. And if you don't have access to the medications that you need, that can definitely lead to feeling more frustrated and going to what's easier to get, which is opioids. But again, they're putting more processes in place to help protect that. So that state of crisis came around and we're now seeing lawsuits associated with Purdue Pharma, as well as now pharmacies that they've been uh, assigned as being part of the opioid addiction because there's not parameters around making sure that it was being safely used and we weren't filling them early and other things from the retail setting. So overprescribing led to the root of the cause. But when we dig a little bit more into that timeline, you'll see it wasn't until 2002 when we saw Suboxone and Subitex come on the market to help with addiction. And then again, you kept seeing more OxyContin stuff. They had to change their labeling. Then we saw Oxymorphone. Then we saw another new Oxycodone, thinking about abuse deterrence. Then finally we see again in 2014. So it went multiple years before we had another therapy for opioid addiction. And then again, you're gonna see it wasn't until 2023. So very recently over this um, summer, they actually approved over-the-counter Narcan. Before you had to go to the pharmacist, we had to have state laws in order to go to the pharmacist, receive counseling in order to get it. And now more of those barriers have been re removed where it's over-the-counter. And it is, I went to Target recently and saw it on the um, shelf. You get two doses of it for $44, which is really important when we think about synthetic opioids and their their affinity and efficacy is leading to why we need more than one dose because they can bind to those receptors. We're going to dig a little bit deeper to that as why you might need repeated doses, especially with some of these synthetic opioids, thinking about illicit fentanyl that's being produced. So with the epidemic, it's really come in three ways. In the 1990s, we had mostly associated with um, opioid um, overdose deaths. The second way in 2010 was with heroin. And now in 2013, it's really with synthetic opioids with fentanyl. And when we dig a little bit deeper, looking at the top screens of patients that had these opioid overdoses, what we have found is it's also multi-drug. It's not just one medication, just fentanyl found in their system. It's multiple ones. So we're going to look at this for just a minute, talking about the structure. I think it's important for us to understand the structure of opioids because it leads to us to understand that you can make just a tiny change on the structure when we think about um, synthetic opioids. And that leads to higher efficacy and higher affinity to that mu receptor, which means that they have a greater potential as you increase the dose to um, having a higher analgesic effect, but also increasing the risk of addiction and also well as tolerance. Now, some of these do not have a linear progression to where as you increase the dose, it leads to a higher analgesic, actually it's some more side effects. And we'll talk about that when we talk about agonists versus partial agonists versus agonist antagonists, as well as antagonists. So when we think about the structure, morphine is 
always that the parent molecule. We start there. And you can see position three and position four are there. And if slight modifications, you can see if you change position three um, on morphine, you're going to get codeine just by adding an O methylated at that position. And then if we change it on position three and position six, we're going to get heroin. So it's a small manipulation of these chemical structures that lead to better drugs for pain, but also when you modify it more, it can lead to more of that antagonist effect. So it's really important just for your awareness. It's a simple modification in a chemical structure that can really change the potential for abuse. So let's talk about our receptors. So our mu receptors are what were first discovered. Um, they were first called morphine receptors, but then we found out that there was more receptors that opioids can affect. And so they changed it from a morphine known to immune receptors. So they're found in the brainstem. Um, they are part of the analgesia, but also think about the side effects, respiratory depression, euphoria, that sedation, decreased um, gastrointestinal motility and physical dependence. So we'll plug that here when we think about pharmacodynamics that decrease gastrointestinal motility. That is the biggest thing as a pharmacist I see when I'm looking at charts for opioid use, we are not good about making sure a patient has a bowel regimen. So then it comes to chronic constipation. We're not using the correct ones that are FDA approved for actual opioid induced constipation. So that is a conversation that if you're having a patient and you're the provider that has them under the pain contract, that we have that conversation with them about bowel therapy and making sure that they're having those things. Cause at least then we need to end up in the ER and have an unnecessary ER visit all because we could have prevented that with a bowel regimen. The other thing is making sure that they have Narcan. We don't do a good job of sending Narcan prescriptions out as well. So we know that they have two subtypes. So mu1 is more likely associated with actual clinical effect for pain, uh, euphoria, and then mu2 is more looking at dependence, anorexia, sedation, um, and other things that lead to those adverse effects. Delta, we're going to look at another slide that kind of shows which ones affect delta, is not so much as more slightly affected in this pathway. Mu is the big one that leads to the efficacy and affinity um, for how well that it works or binds to the receptor. Delta is again, located in the brain. So that really tells you that the majority of our opioid receptors are located in the brain. They are also in the periphery, but they're more located in the brain. And so that can lead to some, some dysphoria. And also the kappa, again, located in our brain, our spinal cord, leading to pain, um, sedation, um, dependence, and so on. We think about respiratory depression. And that's really important. We think about drug interactions with respiratory depression. If we're hitting all of the receptors and then you give another medication that increases the risk of respiratory depression, there are higher risks for that opioid adverse effect. So when we look at the mu receptors, delta and kappa, and we think about it overall, the thing we think about is morphine. So morphine, as well as hydromothon and fentanyl have the highest affinity to those mu receptors, meaning they're more potent. As you increase the dose, we increase the risk, the, the risk for dependence and addiction, but you also get a better pain effect. But you really won't know if the dose is too high until the patient starts to experience those opioid adverse effects. So it's really important that you have that conversation with the patient and really check for those um, effects for the patient. Um, nextly, when we think about coding, it's kind of a weak agonist. So as we dig into an agonist versus an antagonist, it's really important to realize morphine is kind of that parent drug. And we'll look at everything off of those. Morphine is the guiding light. We think about morphine milliequivalents. That's how we look at everything and compare it to morphine to see what is the abuse potential, um, but also how well will it help control the pain. We also never want to do a one-to-one -one conversion with morphine milliequivalents because each drug's 
pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics are completely different. Um, fentanyl, like we said, is a big um, mu receptor agonist. And then we're going to dig a little bit deeper into those antagonists. But you can see the antagonist effect mu, delta, and kappa, which is very important when we think about trying to reverse the effects of these opioids, especially street opioids, um, and try to save that patient's life from an opioid overdose. So let's think about those receptor locations. So they are located in the presynaptic terminal terminals. And when activated by the opioid antagonist, we're going to see um, changes in the cyclic AMP as well as voltage-dependent cal um, calcium. And that leads to the release to block the pain neurotransmitters, think about glutamate, substance P, and so on. So it kind of works together in multiple pathways when it gets to the receptors to send the message down to stop releasing those pain neurotransmitters. We also have to think here is that opioids are both um, have not only the site of action, but also abuse site. So when we think about this, not only does it release that down effect to regulate the pain and try not to send out those pain receptors or neurotransmitters anymore, it also has that euphoria effect we've talked about. And a lot of people just tell you, it just feels good when I take these medications. I feel better, my pain is better. So not only are we blocking the pain pathway to release those neurotransmitters, we're also releasing dopamine. We all know dopamine is that pleasure chemical that can kind of reinforce, let's have another dose, let's have another dose. We think about everything that has abuse potential. We think about food addiction, nicotine addiction. It's the same thing. It reduces that dopamine and that's what has the patient coming back. So when we think about the opioid um, risk tools that are out there, it really helps you evaluate the patient to see about, are they getting that euphoric effect, which is a really big concern when we think about the medication side of actions. Also, opioids to varying degree may antagonize the NMDA receptors, activating the sending serotonin and noradrenaline pain pathways from the brainstem. And that stimulation could lead to neuropathic pain as well as the dependence. So it's very important that as you're using these medications, they're, they're really not going to take care of that neuropathic pain. So it's very important that you're also treating that multimodal effect to think about the neuropathic pain that could come from overuse of opioids for a patient. Um, when we think again about those pure opioid antagonists, again, that's thinking about morphine, hydromorphone, fentanyl, um, it does have that dose-dependent linear regression, um, and you're not going to know how the patient is doing if it's too big of a dose until you have the adverse effects. I just wanted to repeat that because I think that's very important to consider. The other thing to think about is their short half-life. So we have some that have shorter half-lights. That means they work quicker and their time to peak can be different depending on their mode, whether it's an IR, an immediate release tablet, extended release, um, an IM injection or IV. Obviously, IVs can have the quickest onset. But what's important to think about here is that while morphine and hydromorphone are short half-life opioids that on repeat dosing reach steady state in 10 to 12 hours, so there's not really a compounding dose effect. By the time you dose it again in 12 hours, it's already wearing off. That's why you think about, okay, we've got extended release to provide the 24-hour coverage, and then you've got immediate release to deal with that breakthrough pain. That's because literally they're going to have a clinical effect starting to wear off in that 12 hours. The exception, we think about those long acting. So really think about those methadones. They have long half-lives um, that on average, it may take 70 to 120 hours respectively to achieve st steady state. So if you continuously dose this, the patients can have a dose accumulation by day five or 10. So it goes back to what I said already. Patient could tell you first dose, I'm feeling great. 
Well, that dose is a little bit too much. And when we're thinking about day five, they're going to be highly sedated and very non-functioning, very hard for them to communicate because they're almost in a comatose. They're not able to communicate. They're super tired. They're sleeping all the time. And that can be very dangerous when we think about the other clinical side effects that could come with it, not just rest, um, you know, being very tired, but also um, respiratory depression. So let's talk a little bit about the full agonists. So these are compounds that have the maximal response. Your partial agonists have partial response. So if we think about that, the full agonists have full efficacy and affinity. Um, partial agonists are gonna have affinity to the receptors, but poor efficacy. And then your antagonists are gonna have great affinity for the receptor, but no efficacy. So when we're thinking about how it works um, and how it would send the language down to the body on how to process those medications. So it's important to understand that there's a strength of interaction between the compound binding to its receptor and the efficacy being measured of the strength of activity or the effect from which this is binding to the receptor. So again, think about that. Agonists are gonna get efficacy and affinity. And then from there, it's gonna go down depending on what the actual action is. So when we think about those opioid agonists, so there have the greatest affinity for the mu receptor as well as efficacy. And this can change based off the patient's genetics, but until we have the full, everybody's genome, you know, perfectly mapped, we're not gonna know which patients have that clear genetic um, position unless you actually do a genetic test on the patient. Now, when we think about partial agonists, the one that comes to mind for me is buprenorphine. So it's got a partial agonist. It's got a high affinity for the receptor, but low efficacy for me. So it generally does not um, give all the euphoria effect because when we think about it, when it's partnered with other medications, it's used for opioid-assisted therapy. So when we think about that, it helps uh, deter opioid abuse. It can be used for decosification as well as maintenance therapies to help patient. It's very important to know if buprenorphine has, um, does not do well through the first pass effect. So it's not well orally absorbed. So that's why you're gonna see a lot of it with buccal and patches so that it doesn't have to worry about the first pass effect and you can actually get the clinical effect that you're looking for. When we think about antagonists and agonists, those are the ones that have poor mu receptor affinity, thus may function as a mu receptor um, only. So what that means for us is that uh, you're gonna get a little bit more better binding and left efficacy for a patient. So when we think about Tallwin, that is one that we use for multiple things, but you're not gonna get as much of a clinical effect for pain as you would for a full agonist, which would be like your morphine, your fentanyl, and your hydromorphone. And then we've got our true antagonists, which means they um, do not um, have a clinical effect they are working to compete and get full affinity to those um, receptors. They have a higher binding capacity than the active fuel um, mu because it can go to all of them and create that clinical effect to reduce um, the opioid, or sorry, reverse the opioid overdose. So when we think about pharmacodynamics, there's a lot of things to think about. Obviously, you're going to get the clinical effect that you're looking for, but it's really important that we think about sedation, nausea, and vomiting. I'm sure a lot of patients report that to you. And then we treat a side effect with another drug. Um, so that's where you go back to, okay, well, maybe this is not the best one to use for you. Let's make some changes. Let's decrease the dose and find the most lowest effective a dose for you and not continuing to treat a side effect with another medication. So think about promethazine or um, like your Zofan-like products. Also can lead to bradycardia. So this is important. We think about patients who already have underlying um, slower than normal heart rate that you may want to take into that effect or really monitor the patient for that can lead to itching. And then you're 
treating it with another medication. So just be aware that there's a lot of clinical effects outside of what you're looking for, for pain. And you should really take that into effect. And it's really important. We talked about, again, going back to the GI system, it affects the stomach, the small intestine, and the large intestine. And you can see there's a down air for everything. It really completely slows down the motility. Again, goes back to the importance of having that bowel regimen. So when we think about drug interactions, so a lot of people forget that opioids are not um, side effect neutral medications. They do have drug interactions and they're given out without a drug interaction being actually checked for the patient. So they are definitely goes through the first pass effect. They do glucuronidation as well as SIP, um, the SIP system. And so when we think about that, the ones that really come to mind are 2D6. And we think about a lot of our mental health medications as well as amiodarone, there is a, a significant reduction in the effect of the codeine, tramadol, and hydrocodone. So you have to think if you have a patient on especially a long-acting SSRI like fluoxetine, and all of a sudden you flip that to a shorter-acting one such as sertraline, the drug interaction is going away. So therefore, the dose that you have that patient on to get them to have that clinical effect may be too high for the patient, leading to the higher risk of um, adverse effects, leading to an overdose because we did that wasn't taken into account when you made that decision and change. 3A4 is another one. We think about grapefruit juice, um, some of our antibiotics as well as antifungals. They can increase the serum concentration of oxycodone and buprenorphine, again, leading to that higher risk of adverse outcomes. We think about increasing that QT prolongation. That is definitely with our methadone. Methadone is full of drug interactions. So ever considering using that, please, please run a drug interaction checker. And then also thinking about CNS depression. So we know when we look at the Georgia law and they're looking a lot into, did you check the PDMP? Did you do the urine drug screen? Have they been seeing you? Do you have that controlled substance agreement? There's reasons why they have also added into checking the PDMP for our benzodiazepines, because we know and we have seen, um, we look at the opioid epidemic, the patients that have a higher risk for overdose are those using multiple medications together. And we see more often that when they're using a benzodiazepine with an opioid, they're more likely to have that overdose. So it's really important to think about things like benzodiazepines, muscle relaxants, sedating antidepressants, as well as sedating antihistamines, because when we think about the multiple effects or all the pharmacodynamics that that drug could give to the patient, not just the opioid that can lead to some downstream effect. I think we need to think about that as you're prescribing them and thinking about the whole patient, that whole med list, and not just treating that one thing, which is the pain, which I know is what's at the top of the patient's thoughts. We think about um, um, some clinical pearls about formulation. So you've got IR versus ER versus long acting. So we know that our immediate release are going to have that quicker onset. That's why they're greater for breakthrough pain. We always want to start here for acute pain because we have a um, extended release product. They have a higher efficacy and affinity, and they're more likely to lead to that dependence. We always want to try to think about the immediate release to start it off. The fentanyl patch um, effect is not realized for 24 to 48 hours after application. It's also not for opioid uh, naive patients. So when we think about that, if you're changing the patch every 48 hours instead of every 72 hours. There's still a lot of drugs in there. So that's, again, having safe conversation with your patients on how to dispose of that patch so that somebody else cannot get into that. And actually, people do chew the patches to get a quick release of fentanyl in order to receive the euphoric effect that they're expecting. Buprenorphine, like we talked about, all oral formulation must be go through the oral mucosa, cannot be swallowed. If they're swallowed, the clinical effect is not really there. It has to be equally absorbed. And we think about our uh, 
abuse deterrent formulation. So the thought is that it's creating a barrier to hinder the abuse and the misuse. So before the previous formulations of OxyContin could be, you know, melted down and then injected IV. So now they have tried to prevent that with the abuse deterrents. So um, you can see the strategies there that have been placed um, and placed um, so that you're not able to crush it and snort it as easily. You're not able to melt it and inject it. So that is the rest of my presentation. I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Dutta as she um, continues to expand more on the rest of our topic, which is thinking about pain management and clinical practice. Hi there. Um, so I want to, uh, Alex started off with the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of the opioids. What I want to do is how do we utilize those in our clinical practice? And uh, it's more about the pain management and opioids is just a small part of what we do for pain management and what we have available in our armamentarium for pain management. And that's something that I want us all to keep in mind uh, before we decide to just jump to the opioids, um, as Alex has said. So learning objectives today for this talk is understanding the different types of pain, know how to assess pain, consider um, non-pharmacologic management of pain, understand how to use WHO ladder, understand how to use opioid equivalency tables, and then the difference between tolerance, dependence, pseudo-addiction, and addiction. What is pain? Pain is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience. So it is not just a physical um, uh, con uh, attribute, but is actually a very subjective experience as well. And it does have certainly very complex biological and psychosocial factors. And there are um, actual uh, receptors, as um, uh, Alex pointed out, that are um, uh, turned on by the pain receptors. However, there is a very small emotional and uh, psychological uh, experience to that. And when we talk about pain, we certainly talk about the physical pain, but there are so many other factors that affect our perception of pain, psychology, social interactions. If we're isolated, we're going to be much more socially isolated. We're going to be much more um, um, in tune to the pain and much less likely to be able to recover from that pain. If we have any spiritual and existential pain, that's also going to play a role in our perception and our management of that pain and how much we can tolerate that pain. So pain can be, uh, is uh, both nociceptive and neuropathic. For nociceptive, you've got somatic pain, that is your well-localized pain, your um, broken bone, your uh, surgical pain, it is damaged to the skeletal muscles, skin and bones. And it can be sharp, gnawing, aching, and worse with movement. And then there's a the visceral pain and it's much less localized. Your appendiceal pain, for example, starts off initially in the epigastric area, then goes periumbilical until the actual uh, disease process, the appendicitis reaches a cirrhosa, and then you actually have the localization in the right lower quadrant. So uh, keep that in mind that the internal organs, your cardiac muscle, your smooth muscle are all going to uh, cause visceral pain and not so much less, not so much localizable uh, somatic pain. And then of course, there's a neuropathic pain where you have the um, or, uh, the neuropathic receptors that are now um, uh, involved, you have your burning, your tingling, your pins and needles, you have your neuropathic pain from diabetes, you have your radicular pain from your spinal disease, you also have chemotherapy uh, associated neuropathy. Um, also, uh, and opiates can do this and all, all pain management can actually also cause hyperalgesia. Hyperalgesia is where you have stimulus that would normally cause pain, but it causes pain at a much higher level than it would be expected to. So a small pinch might actually feel like a really bad pain. Um, and then allodynia is pain that would normally not cause pain and is perceived as pain. So a feather or a light touch may actually cause severe pain. And these are all different types of uh, neuropathic pains. 
So good pain, uh, any type of treatment starts with a good pain assessment with the history and physical. Without really understanding what's causing the pain and where the pain is coming from, then we really shouldn't be treating it. Um, so of course you start off with your histories and now, you know, if you remember from your medical school and residency, your uh, onset, your position, your quality, does it radiate? How severe is it? What is the timing? Um, does it occur with activity, before activity? All the associated features and aggravating and alleviating pain. So of course, if you have somebody with abdominal pain, that history is gonna be different for somebody with bowel ischemia than somebody with pancreatic cancer. Same thing with chest pain. We all know that chest pain uh, can be caused, um, you know, whether it's pulmonary embolism or cardiac pain, or is it uh, musculoskeletal pain after a patient has actually fallen and has broken ribs. And of course, that physical exam goes along with it. Is there any um, uh, limitation in range of motion? Do I need to worry about a broken bone or is it more of a muscular ache and pain? Um, palpation and location will certainly help you look at that. And of course, is it, um, how often, how much does it interfere with their ability to do things? Are they able to get up and move around with this pain or is this limiting their ability to uh, carry out their activities of daily living? And so there are several uh, pain um, uh, tools, uh, severity tools that we uh, can utilize. And it's very important to use those because it'll help guide whether your therapy is efficacious or not. If you have a pain 10 out of 10 pain and then you give them medication and their pain only goes down to 9 out of 10, well, then you need to do something different. If you have pain that started off with 8 out of 10 and then you give them something that's down to 1 out of 10 within an hour, well, okay, did I overdo it? So you really need to see and talk about how well are you controlling your pain based on those tools of severity. Um, for children and people with um, uh, uh, cognitive uh, di uh, disorder, you may use a uh, color pain scale and where they can simply just pound, uh, point to the color that they're feeling if they're not able to really um, be able to tabulate it with a, a number. Um, you know, in the hospital, we all use, uh, okay, well, on a scale of one to 10, where's your pain? Um, or zero to 10, zero being no pain, 10 being the worst pain ever. Sometimes patients may only be able to answer whether it's mild, severe, or moderate. Um, in the um, babies and children, we uh, use a flag scale where we look at, you know, what's the facial grimacing, how, how are they moving their legs, are they active, are they crying, are they consolable? And of course, with the dementia patients, we use the pain ad scale. And sometimes with the children, we might even use the faces one uh, bigger scale. So really, really think about not uh, initiating pain management and treatment with pharma, uh, non-pharmacologic pain treatment. Um, if you have arthritic pain, sometimes just range of motion, starting off with range of motion and building up the muscles around those joints can really be the um, way of treating a long-term, uh, treating the um, the arthritic pain and the joint pain. Uh, exercise therapy, range of motion physical therapy. And of course, doing uh, distraction uh, such as massage therapy, Reiki, mindfulness, relaxation therapy can also help to take away their mind and focus on the pain. And so when you have patients with depression, patients with social isolation, some of these modalities might work better for them. Uh, heat and cold and pressure therapy, uh, that's how we use acupuncture. We use massage because of that uh, and how that we use that. We use radiation therapy in patients in order to decrease the size of the tumor to actually decrease pain as well. Same thing with nerve blocks and uh, 
steroid and anesthetic injections, whether it be in the joints, hyaluronic acid injections in joints, or spinal injections, steroids, and nerve blocks. Um, trans uh, TENS units can be really, really useful as well. Those nervous electrical nerve stimulations applied to the um, low back can actually help with the pain management in spinal uh, stenosis and uh, spinal disease. This disease, you have acupuncture, chiropractic, and of course, address emotional, psychological, interpersonal, uh, and existential pains. So if you have somebody who is uh, depressed, consider starting an antidepressant, not just treating the pain itself. And of course, um, uh, sometimes it may just be in our uh, patient population with the uh, hospice and uh, palliative care, a uh, visit with the chaplain can help uh, the patient relax so much more that they can actually start uh, feeling less pain because of that. Pharmacologic management. Before you can even get to the opioids, there's so many other things that you can do um, to treat that pain. Consider the acetaminophen. Your elderly patients uh, with uh, joint pain and uh, with the uh, frailty and immobility, we may just start off with acetaminophen initially, uh, short act, uh, initially uh, on a PRN basis, but even in some basis uh, cases uh, scheduled. NSAIDs. Now, of course, there's certain uh, lots of uh, risk factors for uh, NSAID toxicity and um, um, contraindications for NSAIDs, but a short dose of NSAIDs may actually be beneficial until you can put something long-term in place. So that may be something to think about. And of course, we use our anesthetics, your lidocaine patches, your benzocaine gels, and so on. Um, same thing with the NSAIDs. We also can use the uh, if the or systemic. Uh, NSAIDs may be more contraindicated, uh, decreased uh, absorption through a uh, topical NSAID might be beneficial, especially in your elderly folks with um, joint pain. And then of course your adjuvant medications. You have your, um, for your um, neuropathic pains, you have your gabapentins, your pregabalins, lyricas, lamictal, antidepressants have a huge um, neuropathic uh, component uh, in treating pain, amitriptyline, nortriptyline, duloxetine, we use malt all the time in patients with diabetic neuropathy. And when you've got abdominal pains, think about antispasmodics or, you know, whether it be uh, GI or even GU with your um, bladder pains. Um, think about the, the dicyclamines, your hyoscyamines. Of course, they all have their own side effects. So keep those in mind. But um, if you look at some of the side effects of opioids, some, you may be able to tolerate some of these side effects a little bit better than um, your other side effects of the opioids. And steroids, we use that quite a bit in hospice. It is a multi-use drug, uh, multi drug for us. We use it for pain management, but by decreasing localized swelling and inflammation, but we also use it for increased energy, increased appetite. So we do like to use that quite a bit, but it is something that, you, you know, you might use in your uh, spinal disease uh, with the nerve impingement, steroid, a uh, uh, course of steroids, whether it be short or a prolonged course might be helpful. And of course, your muscle relaxants, your tizanidines, cyclobenzaprines, uh, and baclopens before you even get to the opioids. So when you're trying, starting to use the opioids, really start off looking at the WHO ladder for pain. You know, your first, uh, for mild pain, you'll start off at the lower uh, step of the ladder using your non-opioid adjuvants uh, to try to uh, manage the pain. And then when your uh, pain is increasing, it's still mild to moderate and is uh, the not, uh, opioid uh, management is not sufficient, you can start off with your milder opioids, so your codeines, your tramadols, um, and your hydrocodones. And of course, in the U.S., hydrocodone is sold uh, attached, uh, combined with acetaminophen. So you do need to keep in mind that if you have a patient taking acetaminophen along with the hydrocodone acetaminophen, that they don't exceed the daily um, safe dose of um, 
acetaminophen. And then you move on to your uh, strong opioids when you're, leading, when you're dealing with severe pain um, that is not uh, controlled with your milder opioids. You then go on uh, control with the uh, weaker opioids. You then move on to the strong opioids. And then you've got your morphines, your oxycodones. And a lot of times I'll see patients uh, coming in from the primary care office uh, on Percocet. Well, Percocet is actually a pretty strong op opioid. Sometimes people think, oh, you know, it's not a... Um, it's the next step after um, hydrocodone, but it really changes how potent it is from, uh, from uh, hydrocodone versus the oxycodone. And then, of course, you've got the fentanyls, the hydromorphones, and methadones, and now uh, buprenorphine. Okay, the slide just needs to move. There you go. So some of the things to focus on here with this pharmacokinetics is to notice that your morphine and your... Um, Codeines are actually uh, metabolized and uh, excreted through urine. So when you've got somebody who is um, has renal failure, you probably want to try to avoid using the um, morphine and um, uh, as much as you might in somebody who does not have renal failure. Hydromorphone, on the other hand, is 75% excreted through the urine. And then you have your um, methadone, which is uh, excreted uh, uh, mostly through biliary secretion and not, not much from the urine as, uh, at all. The other thing to keep in mind is that morphine and codeine are relatively poorly absorbed from the GI tract. And of course, we learned that buprenorphine is not absorbed at all from the GI tract um, due to a uh, high um, first-pass metabolism. And then all opioids bind to protein to some degree. So when you have patients with low albumin level, keep that in mind that they may not have their pharmacokinetics may be different than somebody who has uh, a normal albumin level. Um, fentanyl uh, binds to protein a lot strongly than uh, morphine does. And then also keep in mind with the fentanyls, for example, that uh, they, it is lipophilic and it does uh, require fatty tissue in order to create that um, depot uh, in the uh, subcutaneous uh, tissue. So in somebody who is cachectic, you're probably not going to get as much absorption of fentanyl as you might say of something that's oral. And then most opioids are metabolized to other active metabolites, and each of those can have different half-lives. And that's why it's so important to really consider uh, cross-tolerance. So for example, codeine is converted to morphine. Morphine is converted to um, morphine-6-flucuronide, which has a much longer half-life than the morphine might. Um, fentanyl, methadone, and oxycodone are the three drugs. These are, of course, um, synthetic and uh, are uh, have uh, no significant active metabolites. So when you're choosing an opioid, something to think, uh, keep in mind. Sometimes you do want the effect of the active metabolite so that the pain effect does continue, but then also keep in mind that they might have other effects, such as GI sedation and decreased respira uh, respiratory rate. But at the same time, um, you, uh, you know, if you're using drugs that don't have the active metabolites, you can actually um, predict the pharmacodynamics of that drug a little bit better. And of course, um, some uh, do cause, um, uh, and, I'm sorry, the opioids do bind as um, Alex has shown in her slide to not only just the brain and the spinal cord, but also to the lung, smooth muscle, um, GI tract and bladder. We actually use the effect of, uh, of the binding of the lungs in, uh, for our patients with air hunger and dyspnea. We will actually use our opioids uh, morphine coating to help deal with that as well. All right, so uh, this slide is very similar to Alex's slide where it talks about the uh, different effects of morphine and really all opioids have. You do have your confusion, your sedation, your blurred vision, hallucination, of course, your euphoria. And then of course, keep in mind the uh, uh, act on, um, its effect on the cardiac muscle. You've got your decreased heart rate, your uh, decreased blood pressures. 
Um, it does cause nausea, vomiting, urinary retention, constipation, monoclonus, and myoclonus. And then all opioids to some degree do affect immune response as well. And so if you have somebody on chronic opioid therapy and they're having a lot of infections, something to consider. Uh, one thing about buprenorphine is that it's less likely to uh, suppress immune response than some of the other opioids. One thing that I uh, that um, I find clinically a lot of people don't ever think about, we talk about uh, uh, constipation, opioid-induced constipation, but it also, opiates can also cause uh, urinary retention. And so when you have uh, somebody who is also taking um, ditropan or merbitrique and one of the um, antispasmodics, um, then you are actually potentiating the effects and can lead to urinary retention even more. Uh, somebody with uh, BPH, um, you may need to make sure that you're also asking about how well are they urinating because urinary retention can be a potential um, effect that we don't always ask about. We may be focusing on the constipation, but also uh, need to ask about the urination. And as far as when you're treating uh, more uh, with opioids, it's important to understand what one dose of uh, opioid, of a single type of opioid, means for another opioid, especially when you're trying to do long acting with short acting and trying to figure out the dosing. Because it is important that if you have somebody who's taking 30 milligrams of uh, morphine, in a daily uh, divided doses that you do when they, for example, if they come into the hospital and can no longer take anything oral, that you do replace that and uh, replace that in an equivalent manner. Otherwise they'll have um, uh, withdrawal symptoms and they'll also have increased pain. So it's important to make sure that you can um, transitioning and using the appropriate dosaging. So um, three milligrams of PO morphine is the same as one milligram of IV. So if you're switching from PO to IV, make sure that you're doing the same conversion uh, using the right conversion. So do not convert them, give them 30 milligrams of IV morphine when they've been getting 30 milligrams of PO morphine, realize that there's a one to three ratio. You wanna give 10 milligrams of IV morphine in divided doses as opposed to the 30. And then when you have somebody who's been taking hydrocodone and that's not been uh, effective and you wanna switch them to oxycodone, realize that what five milligrams of um, hydro, uh, sorry, oxycodone is the same as 7.5 milligrams of hydrocodone. So there's a one to 1.5 ratio for conversion there. And then uh, when we're switching from in our in hospice, we used uh, oral hydromorphone quite a bit. And so we, and sometimes we have patients on Roxanol as well. And we have to try to understand how much morphine is equal to how much um, hydromorphone. And it's a one to five ratio for PO uh, hydromorphone to PO um, uh, morphine. So two milligrams of hydromorphone is really the same as 10 milligrams of um, morphine, oral morphine. And so we have to keep that in mind. Uh, also realize that sometimes um, the effect, the um, conversion rate is not always linear. So in fentanyl patches, uh, it, uh, the higher you go in the uh, uh, dosing of the fentanyl, uh, of a more oral morphine, the less you need of the fentanyl patches, the um, curve is not linear. Same thing with methadone. So when you're actually starting somebody, you've, you've tried non-pharmacologic management, you've tried um, uh, non-opioid uh, pharmacologic management, and now you have to start looking at some opioids. The best way to start really treating is with using short-acting pain medication on a PRN basis to really assess what their needs are for the pain. And so when you have somebody who's completely opioid naive, you really want to start off um, low and titrates low. So, and give them some time. And you really, and you want to know, you know, when I first, um, when I asked some, uh, some of my nurses, you know, so how much uh, are they taking of their uh, 
hydrocodone, and they'll say, well, they've got it ordered every four hours as needed. So, well, that doesn't tell me how much they're really using and how much they're really needing. So we really need to ask, how many tablets are you using in a day? How much are you ingesting? How much are you needing? And then how is that helping your pain? If you're taking four tablets a day and your pain is zero out of 10, then okay, that's pretty working pretty well. But if you're taking four tablets a day and your pain is still five or six out of 10, then we may need to do something different. And then we may need to increase that. So really asking how much are they needing and how is it helping is very important assessing the management of your pain uh, and your treatment efficacy. And so when you have somebody who's using, uh, if I have a patient who's using four or five doses of short acting pain medicine regularly every single day, I really have to think about is this pain or is this uh, really the euphoria that they get out of it that they're using? And so one of the things that I might do is go ahead and switch it to long acting where it's a slower release, they don't get the euphoria or um, medications such as methadone and buprenorphine that do not cause as much euphoria and but they do manage the pain so that we're actually treating the pain and not necessarily providing the second benefits. And then uh, when you have somebody on uh, long-acting pain medicine, make sure they do have short-acting available for incidental pain, for breakthrough pain, because there will be times that they will continue to have pain. You don't want to control their pain so much and, uh, that they don't ever have pain again, because then you may be over-treating that pain. So, uh, and then the breakthrough pain dosage should be about 10 to 15 percent of your total daily dose. And then use your opioid equivalency charts to uh, decide how much to provide of the short acting uh, and um, make sure that you are reducing it for cross tolerance to 30 to 50%. Now, if somebody is if you're converting somebody from one uh, opioid to another and their pain is completely uncontrolled and then you may wanna go closer to 100%, whether it be 75 or 100%. But if your pain is managed and you wanna change it to a different formulation for better ease of uh, ingestion, if you wanna take it to, uh, you know, do a long acting formulation from a short acting, then you do want to try to um, reduce the dose. All right, methadone. And I know methadone, there's a lot of scary things about methadone in hospice and end-of-life care and palliative care. We actually use it quite a bit. Um, uh, and uh, as long as you use it appropriately and understand how to use it, it can be a very useful drug. Um, it does come with a lot of side effects, and those are some of the things you have to keep in mind. It is a stronger, it has stronger affinity than some of the other opioids, so therefore it does lead to uh, a little increased uh, um, better efficacy as well. And because it uh, binds not just the um, mu receptors, it actually inhibits the NMDA receptors and decreases reuptake of serotonin and norepinephrine. It actually increases the level of serotonin and norepinephrine at the synopsis, and it ha therefore has better uh, neuropathic pain management as well. It is not excreted renally, it's supposed uh, uh, to excreted through uh, biliary secretion and so um, and metabolized by the liver. So it is something you can use in your um, uh, renal patients. It does not have any active metabolites. However, it's variable uh, in its bioavailability and its half-life depending on, on the patient, depending on the situation. And of course, it can prolong QTC. So uh, you have to be very careful about uh, other drug interactions and what other drugs are in increasing your QTC. So if you have a patient on Seroquel um, and you wanna start them on methadone, you have to keep that in mind. If you have a patient who already has cardiac disease, has VTAC, again, that's something that this may not be the first drug that you choose. Um, for uh, patients uh, that you do start on methadone, you may want to, you should always check a baseline EKG, and then we'll need to continue to check EKGs periodically, maybe even on a monthly basis to see uh, and to ensure that there's no QT prolongation. And because of its slow um, 
because of its uh, stacking effect, you don't want to do any dose adjustment until uh, five to seven days. So initially, they may not feel the effect of it. And that's something that I have to educate all our patients about is that, you know, when I first start the methadone, you may not feel the pain. Uh, you, you may not feel the improvement in pain. And uh, you'll think that it's not working. But that's okay. Continue to take the as-needed pain medicine as long as you only need using it as needed um, for breakthrough pain. And then over time, as it starts building up in your system, you can then start feeling the pain. And then we will get to the titration portion of it. So it may take a few weeks for us to get to the right level of pain, uh, pain management and the right dosage for you. And um, also realize that when you're dealing with high doses of morphine, you will convert to methadone. Uh, the curve is not linear. It does flatten out. And so um, higher doses uh, of morphine can be treated with lower doses of methadone. And it is long acting based on its attachment to the receptors and not uh, so much long acting based on its absorption. So fentanyl is long, short, long acting, a fentanyl patch is long acting based on its absorption from the uh, fat depots. Um, your oxycontins and your uh, MS contents, MSERs are long acting based on the absorption uh, of uh, in the GI tract uh, because of the binders that they have in there. But uh, methadone can be crushed, it can be given liquid. And in some of our patients in life, we do use that quite a bit and use that quality of it when they're taking methadone and they can no longer swallow, we can switch them over to a uh, liquid or we can allow, uh, we can uh, tell the families that they can uh, crush the methadone. Um, buprenorphine, it is, it does have a high affinity for the mu receptors, but it is a partial agonist and therefore it does cause less euphoria and has less of a abuse potential. It's very interesting that it actually has a ceiling effect on the respiratory depression, but not on pain as much. And so you can go up on the dose uh, of buprenorphine without necessarily causing increased respiratory depression, but still get the analgesia effect. And um, the uh, equivalency of uh, buprenorphine really depends on how it's uh, administered, whether it's buccal, whether it's transdermal, whether it's IV. And just to give you an idea, a 0.3 milligram dose of IV buprenorphine can provide as much pain relief as 10 milligrams of IV morphine. So it can be um, a pretty potent um, pain me uh, medicine depending on how it is uh, administered. It is safe to use in patients with renal failure and in dialysis. And uh, uh, recently, they do. Uh, they, FDA has uh, sorry, uh, approved a subcutaneous injection depot, which you can give every six months. Uh, I'm sorry, you can replace every six months, or you can do subcutaneous uh, uh, injections that are given every. Uh, I got that backwards. Sorry, the implants are put in every six months, and then the injection depots are every month. So this can help with some of your uh, abuse deterrence uh, and your uh, um, opioid use disorder uh, patients where they don't need to come in as often to get their, or to get dosed as often to get their medication. All right, um, a quick word about uh, tolerance, addiction, pseudo-detection, and dependence. And it's very important that we really um, assess what we're dealing with when we have a patient who comes in and is asking for more and more pain medicine. Um, you know, tolerance is just, a, you need the increase, the body has now gotten used to that pain medication. Somebody who's been on opioids for a while, they're gonna have opioid tolerance. So they may require a higher dose of opioid to get the same effect than somebody who's completely opioid naive. And so um, that would be considered tolerance. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're addicted, they're actually tolerant to the lower dose and you need to increase the higher dose. 
Um, I want to talk about the physical dependence first. Uh, physical dependence is when they're actually going through withdrawal symptoms because of uh, stopping the um, medication quickly. So whether you um, dose, uh, whether it's rep cessation of medication or rapid uh, rapid dose uh, reduction, uh, you can. Uh, uh, trigger uh, withdrawal symptoms. And so you've got it, uh, sweating, diarrhea, shaking, inability to sleep, nausea, vomiting, anxiety, um, all of those can be signs of withdrawal. So when you do have somebody who's on high doses of opiates and on chronic opiates at home and they don't continue that in the hospital, that is always something to think about. And then pseudo addiction is where you're trying to increase the pain medicine, or you're treating them with opiates, and they keep coming back and saying, I need more, I need more. And they may actually even exhibit some illegal activity in order to get more pain medicine. But it may, it's quite often just simply not that they want the high, but their pain is just not well managed. So you may see somebody in the hospital who has... Um, been getting pain medicine, um, you order two milligrams of IV morphine every four hours, and they're asking for that pain medicine at three hours. And you think, well, they just want it more and more, or they're watching the clock. And as soon as it's four hours and they know that they can get their pain medicine, they're asking for it. It may not be that they're asking for euphoria, uh, for the euphoric effect of it. It may really be that they're in so much pain. They know that they can't get their next dose until four, uh, four hours are gone. And so they're asking for it. So uh, you may want to consider if it's pseudo addiction, you may want to increase the dosage, whether you're increasing the act um, decreasing the duration, whether you're giving it to at every at three hours as opposed to every four hours, or if you're increasing those to four milligrams so that you can actually have a higher area under the curve and therefore it takes longer, lasts longer in the system and um, uh, achieve higher blood levels and therefore it can last longer. So those are things to consider when you have somebody. Now, of course, when you go back to addiction, addiction does have is a primary neurobiological disease, but it has genetic components to it, it has psychosocial components to it, and of course, environmental factors as well. And uh, it is impaired control over the drug use. So the patient wants to quite often even stop using it, but actually needs to have that next hit. Uh, it's compulsive use. It's continued use despite harm. So you see patients who lose their jobs, um, people who... Um, end up in jail for stealing and they still continue to do that behavior. And so it's drug seeking behavior um, despite harmful consequences. And of course it's a craving. They're not doing it for the pain management, they're craving the high. And that's it for my portion of it. Any questions? Thanks for the presentation, guys. I kind of have a silly question. You mentioned that part of the opioid pain management was possibly switching from a short-acting opioid to a longer-acting. And then you also had a slide on how grapefruit juice <laughs> or something like that could, you know, cause the opioid to hang out a little longer. Have there been any studies on maybe using a pill or actual the juice to, you know, make the opioid last longer? I don't, Alex, I think that may be a question for you, but I don't think that that's something that Yeti would have studied. All right, I'm going to do that. <laughs> All right. Remember to answer your survey evaluation to receive your certificate. And thank you very much.